0: Welcome to the Boy Meets World podcast. I recorded this podcast with the incomparable Colin Clapham two weeks ago before a little vacation out West. As always, Colin and I nerded out over five statistical topics, including NBA playoff win predictions, baseball GMs, baseball cards, looking back at the different types of players that MLB stars have been in their careers, comparing LeBron and MJ, that was a fun one, and then discussing a little NBA draft project I did a few weeks back. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, very exciting news. Blindly give this bad boy five stars and then talk about how these podcasts are religious experiences in the reviews. Enjoy. All right, I'm back for the June edition. It's three months straight. I mean, three months is, uh, it's a committed relationship, that I think, is, that we're in. That is. Yeah. I don't know what the, the flower type is for that. But. So I think it's the wood. It's the, the wood. Or, or like the, the cardboard.
1: Yes. Yeah. Fair.
0: The Very cardboard fair. anniversary. I'll take it. Uh, the third month of Colin Clapham and I's uh, stats podcast. So it's going well. Uh, we're kind of getting better and better at it each time. I feel like I'm just amassing an incredible amount of knowledge uh, just by, by listening to you talk for... For a couple hours every month, so um, appreciate you doing this. We're gonna get into some stuff, but you're in the middle of a job hunt right now, and I'm, I have this theory that uh, just screw it and go to Vegas. Mm. Use use your powers for evil.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't be opposed if there was a good a good payoff. Um, I mean, at this point, why not, right? Yeah, but I mean, all
0: the things we're talking about are like you know win probabilities and things like that. Let's just use it for money line probabilities. And all of a sudden, we're in different business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got the degree for it, so. All
0: right. This <laughs> podcast is over. We just booked a flight. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> maybe one day when we are uh, in a different <laughs> stage of our lives, we, mm-hmm. can, we can do that. But for now, we'll just play in the hypotheticals. Um, we'll, we'll do what we did the last couple times. We will uh, go over five statistical, statistical topics. I actually contributed one of them, them this time. Um, and I'll try and break it down in a... Digestible format, and then Colin will, um, like I said, be, out. yeah, right. He'll he'll nerd out. He'll mm-hmm. he'll give me a quick pat on the back and say, "I got it from here," <laughs> um, and then uh, and and add some some more to that. So the first one was really interesting. It was in, the topic is, is how the NBA playoffs are like flipping a coin, um, which you know if you're a fan of the NBA, you you would not think that the Warriors winning the titles is like a flip of the coin. It would be like a, I don't know, like a, they own. They own the top half of the coin and then five-sixths of the other half of the coin would be mm-hmm. kind of how it works. Uh, but but my, my translation of this was that statistical models had game one of the Warriors-Cavs series uh, in the 2018 finals as basically a 50-50 game. Uh, but then those odds change slightly despite very little about the components of, the, of that game one changing. So game two's odds are very similar to game one's odds to game three's odds, even though it's the exact same two teams playing. Which connects to the whole idea of uh, the gambler's fallacy, which states that a gambler is incorrect to assume that after flipping coins and they get three heads in a the row, they're incorrect to assume that tails is next uh, because you know you're due, or you're also incorrect to assume that heads is next because you're on fire. That the odds reset every time, um, but you know whatever the odds of game one are should be similar to everything uh, for the rest of the games so so why did those odds change from game one to, to game two to game mm-hmm. three
1: yeah so that that was actually perfectly summed up the gamblers fallacy you know if I flip a coin a hundred times in a row and it's all heads I shouldn't assume that the next hundred flips are gonna be tails you know what's the difference from me flipping a hundred times in a row and flipping it immediately to me flipping it hundred times in a row getting a hundred heads and then putting it in a drawer for a year pulling it out and then flipping it another hundred right. times those like coins aren't hot yet. those yeah exactly so it always has a 50% chance of coming up heads or tails um, so when you go from game one to game two you know the Warriors are home for both of those games um, essentially they are the exact same team mm-hmm. going into both but in game one, the site that I was looking at uh, is a blog called Inpredictable, um, and I'll just put a disclaimer at the top here that the NBA is not one of my stronger bases of knowledge. You're coming to the dark side. Though. I am coming to the dark side. I'm trying to expand my horizons, um, so two or three of these topics are NBA-related. There yeah, we go. So, we got them. Um, I'm, uh, I'm uh, definitely getting my feet wet here, So, um, but for all intents and purposes, game one and game two, you have... These same two teams playing on the same court, yet in game one, Golden State's probability to win is 49.4%, and in game two, their probability, probability to win is 52.3%. So the way that they calculate these um, is they take a lot of different uh, uh, factors into account. Um, and the two sets that I was looking at were this blog, unpredictable. Um, and then ESPN um, does their own own prediction. So an unpredictable, um, basically. And I don't know if this is a famous NBA blog. I don't know if you've heard of it. There's tons. No. so okay. Yeah. I, mean, I the, figured there would be a lot out there. Um, this one seemed pretty legitimate. Um, he, the the writer was very open about how he calculated everything and what went a, into. Which is a big a big thing for you. That is a big thing for me. And, and 538. I know it. Five thirty eight. Are you listening? To, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Nate Silver. He jerked. Um, I hope they never have an opening and they hear this. Um, (laughs) um, But uh, essentially, they take the pregame probability. So before tip-off even happens, um, they basically use a probability based on uh, Vegas odds makers. Um, So ESPN does something different. They use BPI, which is Basketball Probability Index. Power Index. Power Index, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, So essentially, they take... Um, the strength of a team beforehand um, and they use uh, uh, that probability of how good that team has been versus another team so they look at the Warriors as a whole versus the Cavs as a whole Mm -hmm. um, and they assign a probability to each to win and then and then obviously one uh, is going to be higher than the other or it might be a 50-50 split but that's pretty unlikely. Um, Impredictable uh, takes it a step further. They get a little granular and they take player stats into account. So if Steph Curry's out, ESPN their probability actually doesn't account for that. Hmm. Um, the Unpredictable blog did account for that. Um, so 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 that would probably happen because a
0: ESPN's is looking at victory margin and record, whereas Unpredictable is going off of more what goes into the record and what goes into the winning percentage.
1: Yeah, so because they use or rely on Vegas odds so heavily, um, there's a lot of money at stake Mm -hmm. with the the Vegas odds (laughs) makers, so they are trying to include the most relevant information and as much of it as possible. Um, And this kind of gets into this idea of this bias-variance trade-off where you are modeling for something um, and you are either going to, to make a model that's going to be extremely rigid so the probabilities can fluctuate rapidly mm-hmm. um, or it's going to be a little more conservative um, and changes in the game might not have as large of an effect. Um, so I think about um, uh, one of the examples that I saw on a blog was the 2016 election. Um, everyone was you know, hooing 538 for... Uh, predicting the result incorrectly. Um, I think beforehand they said that Hillary was going to win. It was like a 72% chance. Um, but if you look at 538 compared to other sites, they were actually the lowest of all the major sites in terms of the probability. All the other sites were like 80% or above. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this bias-variance trade-off where if I make a model that you know is more of a wiggly line. And if I'm looking at probability throughout a game, second by second, of you know, they base it on like, you know, who has the ball, what the score is, how much time is left. Mm-hmm. Um, something like unpredictable that might use a more granular approach might have a more wiggly line. ESPN might look more like a straight line throughout. Okay. Um, and it
0: does if you look at ESPN's kind of uh, win probabilities live. There, you don't see that. It's not a heartbeat. It's exactly. kind of a just a like a. Almost like a sales graph. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they are they are trying to um, basically account for variance. They don't want their their charts to be biased uh, too much. Um, so the the knock. So it's it's called using using a quadratic model if you're using a more flexible line. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is that you are basically fitting a model for outliers. So you are trying to connect all the dots in a chart. Mm -hmm. um, And by doing that, you're kind of assigning the same weight to a very ridiculous value as a more common one. Okay. Um, So essentially, you are overfitting, is is the term that a lot of statisticians use. Um, So you want to, you know, there are a lot of different methods to fit a regression line. Um, Linear regression is the one that's most, Common that a lot of people know about, and essentially you're just taking the mean. You're drawing a line that you know the points are equidistant from each on the below and above mm-hmm. um, when you're drawing that linear regression line, and essentially you're just trying to take the average of of those points over time. Right. Um, so ESPN is essentially doing. It's not linear, but it's more linear than certain blogs like unpredictable.
0: Got it. And I think that what, my first reaction when I saw that these numbers that you pulled seeing that Golden State was a 49.4% favorite considering everything that we know about that series and how it ended up being a sweep and that yeah. was largely the result that should have happened based on the talent on the floor, I was wondering how, you know, where where did you get this statistic that would tell you that it's 49.4 because uh, in my opinion, the only thing that would tell you game 1 of of Golden State and Cleveland is a 50-50 is something that a statistic couldn't take into account, which is kind of the the strategic elements of that series of how you know for Cleveland getting game one was such an important task and and doing that would be was their one chance to flip the series and when I say Cleveland I mean you know LeBron mm-hmm. and h- hence the fifty one eight and eight effort that he gave and was able to 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 was just playing much harder than he was in any of the other games. Um, so why do you think that? that a granular prediction model would favor, would give so much more credence to a, a team that was such an obvious underdog from a qualitative perspective than maybe BPI. Because I would, I would imagine that ESPN would have that game as much more of a 60-40 Golden State than a 50-50 like Impredictable had.
1: Yeah, and, and the, the other crazy thing about that is Golden State was home in game one, right. which makes you think that that would push you even higher. I I um I was reading something today actually that was saying how um the idea of this this home favoritism, like this home court advantage is actually so overblown mm-hmm. that in reality um I've I saw as low as being at home only adds like 0.8 points to the home team's score. In what sport? Uh, basketball. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, they, they, the, the dimensions. There's a very mm-hmm. clearly defined dimensions yeah. in basketball, more so than basketball, or, you know, I don't know how it is in hockey or anything else like that. But um, baseball uh, is the one that I think of in terms of of dimensions and parks and mm-hmm. and, and things like that, or even like the turf. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's. Honestly, like I was looking through how they built this model, um, the four main variables that ImPredictable uses is what what quarter you in, how much time is remaining, the score differential, and the possession indicator. And obviously, at the beginning of the game, you don't really have anything to base that off of. Um, so they were they were again they were using these Vegas odds. Um, I don't I I, I imagine if, that if you're using
0: Vegas odds though so so that makes a little more sense of, as to what I was saying of you know the things that make that a 50-50 are things that Vegas would be able to to override so obviously Vegas is is no dummies they're using algorithms to come up with mm-hmm. with their with their odds but also taking into consideration other you know qualitative factors into that look no further than than the title odds of, of an NBA team next year. The teams that are at the top are the teams that are in contention of, of acquiring LeBron James and if and those odds are just, just to reflect that so that they don't get beat money wise. Um, so if Impredictable is using that as a starting point, that makes a little bit of sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they they you know, I don't I I didn't look into what the Vegas odds makers use. I mean there are so many different ways to build a model and you know, the nice thing about Impredictable was they were, they told you exactly what, they used four variables to calculate the probability. Um, they give you the R squared, so R squared measure is how much of the variance is explained in your model by the vari- variables. Mm-hmm. Um, so their R squared was .285, so that meant that those four variables, so what quarter it is, how much time is remaining, the score differential on the position indicator, that explained about 28.5% of the variance, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually in terms of real world model building that is actually fairly high. Yeah. Um, I mean it's
0: about 7 times higher than than what something uh, 70 times higher than, than something we'll talk about in a little yes,
1: bit. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, you know, and and uh, the thing you have to be careful with and and this is where those models that are ex- much more flexible run into problems is uh, the more variables you add, the higher your R squared gets. So if you start with those four variables and you mm-hmm. keep on adding variables, it's never gonna get below .285. Each variable is gonna explain some fraction of the variance. It's a matter of whether they're important or not or whether you are trying to fit a model and account for outliers or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's where you run into problems and that's where you run into looking at p-values and things like that. Right. Um, there's a measure called adjusted r-squared actually which penalizes you for using more variables Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's what a lot of statisticians will actually look at is this adjusted r square um, is usually lower than your r squared Um, and it it essentially gives you a penalty if i add like a hundred variables it's going to be much lower than my actual r squared interesting so interesting
0: uh yeah very interesting stuff going into into what what goes into those those bpis and those win probabilities um, that you know sometimes can make no sense of Of you know time and place in a football game, especially you see these wild swings because Mm -hmm. the 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 mass amount of points that are scored on a single play. So when you see those kind of like you know EKGs essentially of of a a game, uh, what goes into making those? So good stuff there. We'll move on to to our second one, and I I liken this one to basically what you did is you made uh, baseball cards for GMS (laughs) of like the the stats that, that, that come into what defines a baseball GM, and I thought it was really interesting to look at how, how you would evaluate a, a general manager in baseball. Um, so in order to, to do that, you can only really, this is kind of what you, what you were summing up is, you can only really look at, at trades and draft picks uh, because free, looking at a, how a GM acquires free agents comes down to things that are outside of the, of, of the ubiquitous control of all GMs such as money, uh, location, so a, a team like, you know, the, the Angels is acqui- able to acquire free agents differently than the Royals is. Mm-hmm. That being said, when you look at, at this, you can look at the patterns of, of general managers and how they acquire players, um, and, and seeing what, what strategies are are, are persist for, for successful GMs, um, and, and kind of those strategies that are endemic of, of where the team is in its kind of life cycle.
1: Yeah, that's exactly, you. Um, so essentially I was looking at five specific GMs, um, I was trying to pick GMs that had some sort of unique team profile or strategy mm. and the rules that I, I put around this was I wanted them to have been in their position for at least five years, um, I only wanted to look at trades and draft picks from 2013 to 2017 and I excluded free agent signings because of what you alluded to is this idea of opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, finances are out of their control. Where they're located, out of their control. I mean, I don't know how many people want to go to Kansas City. Um, I'm sure it's lovely, and I'm sure the barbecue is amazing. But um, the opportunity cost of um, draft picks is kind of what got to me. Like, you're you're what you're losing with a draft pick is essentially the value of all the players that come after that. Yep. And that's so abstract, and you never know if that's going to pan out, you know? So I I, I wanted to push that to the side to just simplify it a little bit. Um, And I wanted to, like, analyze the players they go after and see if it matches. Like, is it what the team needs, or is there some sort of strategy that these GMs follow in terms of, I only draft, you know, or uh, trade for infielders, outfielders, home run hitters, contact hitters? And I, everything for everything else, I'm going to draft pitchers. I'm going to draft whatever. Um, So the five that I were looking at uh, Dan Duquette from the Orioles, he's been their GM since 2011, Uh, Rick Hahn from the White Sox since 2012, Uh, Jeff Luno from the Astros since 2011, Brian Cashman, unfortunately, from the Yankees since 98, and Mike Rizzo from the Nationals since 09. So each of those guys is kind of in a very unique position, um, and I'll start with Duquette. So Duquette, his team is in the gutter right now. Um, he is about to sell big time. Um, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. yeah. Um, I know. One I of watched my... I watched Manny Machado walk out a, uh, a grounder last night. Ah, and that was that was the sign sad. that his his days in Baltimore That's so are sad. One of my over. friends is a very big Orioles fan. Matt Kaler, I'm so sorry that Machado's leaving, but he is. Yeah. Um, but um, so Duquette. Um, so I was looking at all of the trades and draft picks that he's made uh, in the, since, from 2013 to 2017. Um, so in the past five, in those in that five six year span, um, only two non first base infielders in that span. So he's either drafting uh, those people uh, or or like he's, he's just they're just they just haven't gotten like non-first base infielders they third baseman shortstop second baseman um i don't know really what his strategy is there um machado has been solid since then i feel like that will probably change um as soon as he's gone um and then interestingly three catchers in 2013 and then nothing since um and three catchers in the same year is kind of ridiculous. That doesn't even include draft picks. So they had Weeters at the time in 2013. I feel like they probably saw the writing on the wall with him. He really hasn't panned out like he was supposed to. He's on the Nationals now. Um, and the Nationals actually were trying to get rid of him, I think. But now they're kind of stuck with him. It would make sense. So Matt, Matt Weeters came on as as
0: one of the Orioles' top prospects in years. Right a, right a, a little bit before Machado, if I, if I remember right. And the second that you know that you have a Matt Wieders and, and project Matt Wieders as your catcher for the next ten years, it probably halts your need to draft catchers in the in the in the meantime in the short time because mm-hmm. you think you're set there and so it's not a priority for you. So once that that's a sunk cost and once you realize you are SOL on catchers, that it would make sense in a knee jerk reaction way to draft three in the same year to Hopefully, just you know, fire fire shit at the wall mm-hmm. uh, to try and get something out of it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, out of those, so those three in 2013 were Chance Cisco, Chris Snyder, and Steve Clevenger. Um, Clevenger, I think, had a cup of coffee at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's,
0: that's how you know it's it's bad.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> M's catchers are are, are a cursed breed.
1: Yeah. Didn't uh, you guys have Jaso or someone? Or John
0: Jaso, Kenji Jojima, Dan it, Wilson. Did you have, uh, on the A's. Uh, ben Davis. Uh, you guys had Veritech We did have Veritech <laughs> We sure <Sorry>. did. <laughs> Emphasis on had. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Derek Lowe. And Derek Lowe. Yeah. Cliff Slocum and really Dave Ortiz. Yeah. We, we we supplied the Red Sox with. With, yeah, you uh, did with a good amount of stuff mm-hmm.
1: for, for Beltrade, too. Thank
0: yeah. you. for will come around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It will. Uh, all right. So, so Duquette is, he was the one, your question here was, how does Dan Duquette still have a job? Yeah,
1: or? I I'd, honestly, I, I have no idea. Um, his teams, you know, he had a few good years. Um, even recently, in 2016, Orioles won 89 games. I mean, in the AL East, that's, that's good. Like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, in almost any other division, that would be playoff worthy. um in 2014 he won 96 games like so in recent memory like they've done well It just i can't remember like i honestly can't remember those teams though i don't know who their ace was i don't know who i'm all i remember is george Sherrill as their closer <laughs> who is like lights out i also remember george Sherrill. yeah uh, another former M. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just salt in the wound here but
0: yeah uh yeah, I think the the Orioles have had problems with with their pitching staff for for a long time, mm-hmm. and, and Camden Yards is not a, a great place to pitch in. So no. it's it's a hard situation to to draft well into. But I mean,
1: you you got to do it. You take the job, and, and yeah. you know, I mean, it's it's up to you to figure. I it mean, out. I mean, they famously that. gave away Jer- Jake Arrieta for pretty much nothing. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, they they had him, and they gave him to the Cubs for pretty much peanuts, and. That was, I think, that might have been the year or the year after where he was pretty much perfect in this from August to the end. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they just they have they must have some problems with developing pitchers. I know they always take flyers out on these losers, basically. Ubaldo like, Ubaldo yeah. is the first one that comes to mind, but um, but yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. He's in a very he's in a very interesting spot where he is in. In the pits right now, and he's mm-hmm. got to rebuild completely. So. so, there's a
0: couple of GMs here that are three of them that are, I think, in a similar position in terms of how they they are either currently rebuilding or how they have rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Brian Cashman is a tough one to to include in this if, if we want to use record as a uh, as a as a measure of, of mm-hmm. success, just because you know we want to say free agents aren't a part of this and how we evaluate GMs, uh, but free agents are are how the Yankees can make. I mean, not not in recent years, but. Um, but certainly are something that, that are uh, exclusive to the Yankees in terms of the, their ability to attract free agents and to go out and get a Giancarlo Stanton. They kind of have, uh, well, they have a mole as the, as the owner of the Miami Marlins. That also mm-hmm. helps. Yeah. Uh, but the three guys are, are Jeff Flanau from, from the Astros, who obviously has built uh, a power. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about, about Mike Rizzo, who took the, the Nationals from, from just a uh, basically upstart team into, into kind of the perennial NLE's favorites, and then, and then uh, Rick Hahn for the White Sox, who's, who's kind of probably a year or two away from being where Houston is. Uh, I think with those three, my question is, can you kind of create profiles or personas of how how to bring a team out from, from the dumps into, into what they are? And I think that all three of those are either doing it or have done it in different ways. You mm-hmm. talked about how the Astros drafted a bunch and just sat on it they yeah. didn't they didn't trade out they didn't they didn't they didn't try and upgrade from anything they have they, they had a bunch of crap years in a row sat on all that talent and then and then the white Sox are kind of doing acquiring that talent by taking other people's trade assets um in the process and saying hey we'll hold on to this bad contract if you you know throw in someone on top of that and then the nationals you talk about how they hit on some generational talent. You get Strasburg, Rendon, and Harper within, I think, a four-year, four or five-year span. That's that's a core of a team right there. Um, and then you just hold on to that and you meticulously acquire whatever it takes. You know, relievers go out and get a a, a Max Scherzer to hold on to that because when you when you hit on that talent, you can't squander it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that if you're talking about teams at the top of the draft, that have to be faced with this decision of how do we get back to being relevant for a long time, I think those three are profiles of, of how to get it done in different ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, the Astros, uh, in that time frame that we were lo- that I was looking at, um, eight transactions of a trade or a draft over a six-year period, or a five-year period, versus Cashman and the Yankees made 24, I think, um, 24 not including free agent signings. So that wouldn't include someone like Chuck Oliver Stanton, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and eight of those non-free agent signings were non-first base infi- non-first base infielders post Jeter. So it's kind of like Cashman is taking advantage of a situation of being in New York, having a lot of money. Um, he is plugging up holes where he needs to. Uh, And people want to come to New York. Like, it's it's a very attractive market to be in. Um, And I I don't blame them. Um, But each year for him seems to have its own theme. So it's kind of like he does things on the fly. Like, his his window, I think his view is probably much shorter. Like, if someone asks you what's your long-term plan. Because it it can be. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like, they have a lot of money to throw around, and, and that's perfectly fine. And, you know, what he's doing with it obviously has made this team extremely successful since 98 um, and he his his view he, I, I doubt most of the time he's looking past like a year whereas you know the Astros and the Nationals might be looking a few more a few years down the road so like with the Astros they made eight transactions um, and they they kind of just like waited until everyone was up to snuff and then in 2017 when they won the World Series, they kind of just uh, added the pieces that mm-hmm. they needed to finish everything off. So, Righty. you know, you get Justin Verlander, mm-hmm. and, you know, on, he, he goes to any team that's going to make it a better team. Um, but it was kind of like just like the final push. Like, they they, they sat, they waited, um, and then they reevaluated the middle of the season. And they were like, all right, what would make this team win mm-hmm. the World Series? And they were able to add this one player and yeah. I mean they added a couple other players to the trade deadline but. And, and this
0: is a profile that I think is especially useful in in mid to low markets such as Houston I mean Houston's a big city population wise so that, so there's a fertile you can fill up a stadium but there's not people clamoring for baseball there's people who are much more interested in, in who farted in a Cowboys training camp mm-hmm. than than anything that happened in, a, in an Astros game. Yeah. So, or I guess Texans, but it's probably Cowboys. Um, so if, if you think of it like that, and so so a team who's going into the cellar now. Talk about. I mean, the Padres have been there forever. Mm-hmm. The you know the Mets are kind of looking at this situation, but it doesn't really apply to the Mets because the the Mets are in a market where you are going to get lambasted. And, you know, you kind of, you have to sell a lot more people and a lot louder voices that this is how you're going to do things than you do in Houston or you do in Chicago uh, like they're doing where they are bad intentionally and then also just taking on all these talent. So that eventually you can sit in a position where you have a contending team because you have all these this talent that you've acquired and accumulated and then you can strike whenever the iron's hot. Uh, to go make a move because you consider yourself one or two pieces of the way like Houston did. Yeah, I mean, I, I... And that's the second team in Chicago. The Cubs The Cubs might not... I mean, the Cubs... How the Cubs did it is also an interesting case study of, of Epstein's profile could easily go on this as one mm, of the more interesting Yeah,
1: ones. I mean, everyone's got their... Own, all 30 teams have their own unique situation, and, you know, they're all trying to fill these holes. I think mentioning the Mets is a really interesting one because... Sandy Alderson, I think, is a super underrated GM. We wish him well, by the we, way. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad, but yeah. yeah, but I think he's super underrated. I think he spent a lot of time, uh, he spent a lot of time around Billy Bean, actually, um, and I think that he takes that wait and see approach in a market where he doesn't necessarily have to but he knows that that's the right way to do it mm-hmm. um and i totally respect him for that i mean the rotation that he built the potential that it had i mean obviously it kind of imploded in terms of health and then matt harvey's just a whack job um it, it that rotation is was just absolutely ridiculous and it it should have been it it had like it felt the coverage of it felt like the 2011 Phillies Mm -hmm. when they had, like, Halliday O's wall. Lee. Blanton. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, Um, Mariner Killer. Hamels, yeah. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it's, you know, all of these guys have different scenarios where, you know, it seems like a slam dunk to try to bring someone to San Diego since it's so nice. I mean, the Padres have been taking flyers on guys who have not panned out. Um, hmm. Matt Kemp, for some reason, did not do well there, and now he's doing an right. amazing job in L.A. Upton, um, yeah. You know, Upton and, and Will Myers and, and even Drew Pomeranz. Uh, what well, was he on the – oh, he was he on was the – He was on the Padres. He was on the Padres, he he on
0: the Padres a, that's right. Uh, Sox got before. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the Padres and the Mariners
0: are in similar situations, and I think the Padres, unfortunately, suffer from a free agency standpoint of you haven't been good since Tony Gwynn. Uh, although you have made the playoffs more recently than Seattle Mariners, keep that in mind. But um, you haven't been there, and and it's the summer. Every 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 place that you're playing in is good or is nice weather-wise. So so the the you know Miami and and San Diego's pitch in that mm-hmm. regard is not uh, is not super valuable, and it's also not a league where players have a ton of of movement movement freedom like they do in the NBA. Um, so I was about to ask you like if you were starting a team. How, you know what 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 way would you go but it, it totally depends on on the situation in the market and, and what what your expectations are the Red Sox couldn't do what the Astros did it's just impossible I mean no. it, it would require such a, a a team effort with with the Boston media to pull something like that off that, that you can't even really suggest
1: it as a strategy okay
0: and and, and, and I mean you have the money to spend to, to go to go treat it differently
1: yeah I mean it's funny I was actually just thinking of this today. Um, so I, I would say that if if I was thinking about it today in terms of you have more people who are more knowledgeable of the NBA draft so I feel like the NBA draft gets a lot more coverage than the MLB draft yeah um, and which, which is
0: I mean coverage wise it, it might be the NBA is an easy sport to comprehend basketball is an easy sport yeah. to, to, take, yep. to take in you can see everything mm-hmm. it's it, the, the the nuance of just a basic understanding of the game is is very easily accessible. You talk about baseball where now there are forty rounds of drafts mm-hmm. or draft picks yeah. and, and the amount of information that goes into that, distilling that into five minute decisions when you're picking amongst thousands of people, not yeah. not fifty or sixty like you are in, in basketball, but thousands, that that is a
1: much harder ask. So I, I think that um the big thing there and and i just i think of across a lot of sports this is where most teams get their value is i won't say preying on uh you know this this abstract value this you know what if or like what what potential does this player have and then cashing in on them being a bust Mm -hmm. for like proven talent um but i think of like uh, Eli Manning was a pick who was who was traded from the Browns. He was originally drafted by the Browns, and then he was traded to the Chargers. The Chargers, that's Chargers, right. Yeah, he, um, he, was,
0: he didn't want to play in San Diego. Yes, first, first person s- ever did not want to live yeah, in San right. Diego. Yeah, Like, well, <laughs> that's
1: Eli. So, yeah. um, but I think of him, and I, I think of, of across all sports. I think one thing that would be super interesting was you gain you basically arbitrage with players. I think a place like Boston, if you were to trade away a J.D. Martinez right now. Mm-hmm. There would be riots. I mean, he's the home run leader right now. He's he's super popular. He's he is living out his con. Like people want him to be here. They like him a lot. Um, there would be riots. I think where you could get away with that is if you if if you were able to like arbitrage and trade draft picks mm-hmm. uh, for proven talent. I think that is where a lot of the meat lies. So I would I would flip draft picks for proven oh. talent.
0: To, I mean, totally. If if JD Martinez was playing in in I don't know if he was playing in Pittsburgh right now, mm-hmm. and Pittsburgh's not going anywhere, and yeah. Boston's in a position where what what's what's a draft pick to Boston when you have all this money over? Yeah, and over? exactly. And and what would be interesting about that is is that it's such a it would be such a new construct that's never been thought of because it's not it's not legal in in baseball to tr- to trade draft picks like that like it is in the NBA you would have just some wild, wild stuff going on. You'd have, you know, the Ricky Williams trade happening in in this, basically foregoing an entire draft Mm -hmm. just to acquire this player that would bring you that World Series because of how much that means.
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, if you think about it, like, do you know when the College World Series happens? I mean, it's right now. It (laughs) ended today, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so, like, most people don't, Know that though that it ended today, and the and draft it, already happened. The draft already happened, and I, I bet you most people couldn't name the first pick. No, I couldn't. No, because because um, he yeah. just finished high school chemistry. Yeah, right. Probably. Like yeah, yeah. Actually, the Red Sox were the first team in the first round to pick a high schooler, and he's a junior. There you go. So I'm kind of like it's just it's just an impossible thing of of you know. It's but how do you like how can you tell if a 16 year old who can't even do calculus like. How can you tell if he's going to pan out? I mean, a lot of these. Guys, I think there have been
0: a lot of baseball players who can't do calculus. That yeah, true. Can. That's very true. <laughs> no. fair. Um, but like, save a few. But.
1: It's so it's such an abstract idea. But if if other teams assign this potential value to it, and you can flip that person for someone now, then I don't see why you wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying like totally sell the farm on your draft, but if you can if you can flip like I think about the Sox with like. Um, for sale. They they gave up Moncada and Kopik, uh, and a third guy who I don't. know. They don't regret remember. that. Oh, not at all. Not sales not even a, been not even a second. Awesome, yeah. like perennial Cy Young candidate. Yeah.
0: Like ask, ask the Mariners if, if Boston regrets acquiring Chris Sale. Chris, yeah. Chris Sale just went through them like mm-hmm. like a like a like a core of the earth drill mm-hmm. over over the weekend and. You, you got that guy for, for two players who weren't on your big league team. And yeah, you know and, you're Boston. So so by the time Yo c- could be something, you can go get another one. I mean, but but that's a reality that exists in Boston and, and elsewhere. So and not elsewhere. So it, it's it's a it's I, I like this idea that we kind of come up with of, of these profiles and how you manage teams, um, and how you how you can create. Wins given a situation mm-hmm. um, and, and not just create wins but as we talked about last time with Billy Bean create an economy that works for an owner because that's that's really what you're asking to do um, in some cases is the World Series is great yes there's one of them a year mm-hmm. right and there's there's eight playoff spots I guess we can say ten or yeah no there's eight playoff spots ten ah. playoff spots technically like nine ten, playoff spots yeah. if we're, if we're talking much. about it. yeah um so those things are finite, but the one thing that, that is infinite that's going to keep you around is 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 sustaining an economy. So, it, just a lot of different strategies that, that go into to uh, being a GM, and I think that we're, we're discerning is that it comes down to situation and yeah. So is that, that thing that we didn't want or that we wanted to discount the ability to acquire free agents is actually a sign of a lot of other things that go into to your team strategy. Yep. Um, all right. So let's let's stay in your wheelhouse. Talk a little bit more baseball. Um, talking about guys, you picked, you picked three or four here of, of kind of this stages of a player's baseball career. And for, for stars, you can kind of create this, this kind of um, like life cycle for how they come into the league. Obviously, players who are talented come into the league talented and they perform like talented players. However, how everything works um, is that you get scouted. And then, you know, in today's baseball, you can shift to a player as a, as a, who is an offensive player. You can, you can, you know, look for certain pitches, or look for certain counts with a pitcher that you're trying to, to exploit. Um, so players usually go through these distinct phases of their career. There's the first one where they come on. It's just it's the raw talent against unknown um, hitters or batters or hitters or pitchers um, that, that kind of define it. Uh, and then they kind of get adjusted to, and then they adjust to that adjustment. And that, those three stages are kind of what describe these elite talents uh, as they come through.
1: Yeah, um, and this, this idea of this topic kind of came about, one of my friends was talking about Jose Abreu back in 2014. Um, he hit 36 home runs that year. He played, he was 27 as a rookie, um, which is old. Um, and he played way above what people thought he was going to. Um, and one of my friends just made a comment. They are like, oh, I can't wait until pitchers get you know used to him and then they know how to pitch to him and he hits like five home runs next year. Um, so I, I was thinking about that recently and um, I wanted to check in with him again. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of basically picked four players who would be recognizable to the casual baseball fan. Um, and I wanted to see, you know, Break down their career and see. All right, in the first two years, where you know the opposing team is getting used to them, how do they perform? So like, what when they came onto the scene, what type of, type of player were they, and what were the expectations? Uh, in those middle years, once you know they other teams had a sample size and kind of react to them, how did they react to that? Mm-hmm. And then now, in the past year or two, what have they been doing? Um, have they adapted their game to you know what? Other players did or have they just fizzled out completely. So uh, the four players I looked at were Mike Trout, uh, Bryce Harper, Jose Batista, and Steven Strasberg. Mm-hmm. So three position players and then a, a pitcher. Um, and what I used, uh, the statistical concept is called principal component analysis. So essentially what you're doing is um, if you wanted to come up with a profile of these players, um, you would, principal component analysis to basically say what are the most important stats in their stat line that make up who they are? Mm-hmm. So, like the principal components of Barry Bonds would obviously be like home runs and walks yep. and, and things like that. Um, whereas, you know, a, a Machado might be like doubles, um, or a Ben Revere would be singles, mm-hmm. and hits, things like that. Um, so, again, I'm looking at so I'm looking at three phases of play. I'm looking at first two years, middle years, and then the last two years. Um, so for for Trout, I believe is my first one. Um, so Mike Trout is a baseball god. He is awesome, um, truly he, unbelievable. He's he's like, uh, playing in the same division. Mike Mike Trout is a middle name. I don't know. If
0: you, I don't know if you knew it. Uh, Mike Bleeping Trout. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Every, like so much. I, I, and it, it comes in is exactly what you're talking about of these stages. Mike, Mike Trout came in and you're like, oh, okay, here's the hot rookie. He got a single in, in, the, you know, in the right field. Oh, my God, he just turned that into a double. Yeah. Or double, that's a triple.
1: He is the smartest baseball player. And, like and
0: then Mike Trout becomes baseball-murdering Mike Trout, mm-hmm. but is also striking out a lot, and now has rounded into this kind of like perfect – Form Mike Trout.
1: It's it's kind of it's kind of crazy when you look at it. I mean, in his first two years, so his first full year, he stole forty nine bases, hit thirty home runs, and he struck out one hundred and thirty nine times. And his second year was very similar: thirty three steals, twenty seven home runs, one hundred and thirty six strikeouts. But in those middle years, he kind of focuses on stealing less, and his he's like he he kind of turned. I think he tried to, you know, pull the ball out of the park a little too much. I think. Um, I know there, there was a, uh, a time when they were talking about how he couldn't hit balls high in the zone, so a lot of pitchers were throwing into like high strikes to him, mm-hmm. um, and he, he couldn't really catch up with it, um, which I'm sure pissed him off. Um, but if you do catch up with it, oh my God, it's a he, yeah. he, he turns he turns on it. So like in those middle years, you know, he steals sixteen bases and then eleven bases, he hits thirty six and then forty one home runs, but. His strikeouts, so his first two years of strikeouts, 139, 136. His strikeouts jumped up big time, 184, 158. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, I think people got used to where his weak spots in his zone were, um, but he worked so hard, and he's just so gifted athletically. Jersey kid. Yeah, Millville. And there Ooh. we go. Um, so he, he just adapted to it. So the last two years, um, 30 steals and then 22 steals, 29, 33 home runs. Strikeouts, so in those middle years, the strikeouts were 184, 158. Past two years, 137, and then 90.
0: Yeah. The 90 was partially due to an abbreviated season last year. Yeah,
1: so he played 114 games. Um, but for that pace, I mean, he was not going to break that no. 137. Like, he he was, his play discipline has returned big time. Yeah, um, it's
0: it's been crazy to, to, you know, Trout comes in as, as like we talked about, this, 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 Uber athletic, you know, hitting machine Mm -hmm. becomes kind of a a power and strikeout guy, and that's kind of the knock on on Trout is that he he strikes out a lot. You can you can you can make him get outs that way, and then that those days are over. I mean, it's just it's you're talking about a much different player who is actualized into kind of this perfect version of himself, yeah. uh, Which which is terrifying. I mean,
1: he's in his age 26 season, and they're talking about how he's going to post the best season in baseball. I I I'm
0: pretty sure. Cespedes Family Barbecue was tweeting this out earlier this year, um, but I, I'm pretty sure that Mike Trout passed Vladimir Guerrero in WAR this year, or <laughs> or is on pace to do That's, that. Yeah, that I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised. He, Vladimir Guerrero had had an amazing like he's a Hall of Famer. He, like a Hall of Famer, uh, one of the best power hitting corner outfielders ever. And Mike Trout is in his what mm-hmm. eighth season, and and is already passing him in terms of output
1: yeah which is just nuts here's the weird thing though Vlad Guerrero super fun to watch didn't really know what was going to happen when he was up at plate or when he was in the outfield for some reason Mike Trout is milk toast. Mm. he's just like this guy who doesn't really want the spotlight and he's he's he seems like a super good dude yeah but he if he were the face of baseball like they would lose viewers which I feel like is why they cover Bryce Harper more
0: Harper, yeah, Harper's just more more dynamic, and he's also on your list of, of a is. guy who has who has kind of run into form. We'll talk about him, and then I want to talk about Strasburg, mm-hmm. and then we'll we'll move on to another one. Yeah. Um. So Harper obviously came in; he was the 16 year old hitting hitting home runs out of the ball, ballpark in mm-hmm. high school. Came in with the power as a, as a reputation, um, and I was I mean give, given what we're looking up, looking at of of you know, these next winter meetings are gonna be go- dominated by where's Rice Harper going. Mm-hmm. This player that I'm looking at over his first six seasons in the MLB is not a player that I'm I'm gushing over. He's he's never had a hundred RBI season.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was looking at that this morning too. It's it's crazy. I mean he has he so he's played six seasons, three full and three partial. So he's he's kind of this reckless guy who's prone to injury. Mm-hmm. Um, when he first came on the scene it was he was this five to a player. Who everyone was like he can do it all. Um, you know he doesn't look like he's gonna hit a, a ton of home runs, but he does. Um, he did have that one MVP season where he hit. He looks like he's gonna runs. get in
0: a lot of, of fights at bars. Yeah, he does. <laughs>
1: I'm sure he does too. Yeah. Um, especially if Papel Bond's there. Um, but yeah, like he started out, he was this super reckless guy. He was he you know his stolen base figures were in the double digits. Um, but like he just kind of had a wide he spread a wide net, mm-hmm. and he's kind of settled into like this power guy now um his triples and stolen bases have decreased i mean in 2016 he stole 21 bases and that was a career high but sandwiched in between that was two stolen bases six stolen bases and four stolen bases so it's kind of like you know and some of those were partial seasons so maybe he's just perpetually injured or maybe he's changing as a player but i made this note he seems to have shifted From the guy who like starts a rally like it's ninth inning you're down by one no outs and he's the first one up yep um i think of him less in that scenario now and i think of him more as he's the guy who comes up uh when like the bases are loaded and there's two outs and you're down by one Mm -hmm. like he he is who i think the dh role is going to look like when he is old too old to play the outfield I think he will be like the perfect DH, probably.
0: I think if we're looking at this, I mean Har- Harper's Harper's trajectory is a couple years behind Trout's, um, so given that his power kind of has crested, I think that he can kind of grow into there. There, there is another stage of, of Harper that we have yet to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it won't happen in, in in Washington. I think that what the Rays did yesterday hear about this the the Rays public address team like when, when Bryce Harper came to the plate the first time uh, in Tampa Bay they played New York New York oh, yeah. and then the I second time sure they, they. they played Chicago um, so <laughs> nice. just expert level trolling yeah, uh, from, that's pretty from Tampa amazing. Bay I
1: love that um,
0: <laughs> so yeah we've talked about Machado we've talked about Bryce Harper mm-hmm. both of which will more than likely be on, on new teams next year mm-hmm. um, let's talk about Strasburg mm-hmm. who was drafted in the same draft as, as Stroud number one overall uh so been in the been in the league for about the same Strasburg has has been a, a very successful pitcher uh when he's been able to stay healthy hasn't hasn't um, hasn't started more than 30 games more than twice or more than once in his in his career I think that this the the really interesting one that you can kind of visualize is that that Harp or that that Strasburg came on and the strikeouts came with with a cost mm-hmm and it was a peak strikeout, was also peak home run and then peak walk, um, or, or 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 bottoming out in walks, which means that to me, you're kind of drilling to the middle of the zone, you're, mm. you're, you're very effective, you're throwing strikes, you're going to get strikeouts. Um, but he has actually thrived and has been kind of the best version of himself as a guy who walks a little bit more Mm -hmm. so there's this kind of idea of it's a it's you know you don't want to give up walks you don't give up free bases but there's some value to it as kind of an equalizer to your pitching strategy
1: yeah i mean he is at his best when he is walking almost three people per nine um when he actually tried to lower his walks per nine that's when he got into trouble and his strikeouts plummeted and his, his stats got a little shadier i think he he. So he was this strikeout pitcher who everyone was like, he's gonna strike out ten batters per game, and it's gonna be ridiculous. He, his kid's so talented, and he is, and I, I like him a lot. Um, when he first came on the scene, you know his his K per nine was like his first season. He 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 started twelve games. His K per nine was twelve point two. When he tried to get away from that and introduce a little more control, that's where he got in trouble. I think. He is this guy who needs to, like, paint the corners. Um, he does have some velocity around his his pitching style, so I won't compare him to, like, a Greg Maddox, mm-hmm. was like, the king at painting yeah. the corners and, and placing that pitch exactly where it needed to be. Um, I don't really know who I would compare him to, per se. Maybe, like, I mean, Pedro had, had filthy stuff, um, and I think that he was in his own little world, but... Um, yeah, like he seems to be this guy and he's he's moving back towards it now. Like his his walk walks per nine over his his career. So some of these are, are injury shortened seasons, but you're looking at 2.3, 2.8, 2.7, 2.8 and then it's 1.8, 1.8. And those are the years where he didn't like, his numbers weren't bad by any means, but he wasn't the pitcher that people thought he was going you see, to be. You see with those low walk rates, you see ERA spike, you see home run rate. His home spike. run rate, he was giving up a home run a game both of those years. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he, he kind of, like, settled in. And then the last two years, it's been 2.7, 2.4 walks per nine. And his home, right, home run rate is below one. Um, and his strikeout rate is above 10. So, you know, it's it's a strange combination of things but it seems to be working for him um he seems to not be phased by people on base all that much so mm-hmm. you know I, if it works for him painting the corners and throwing some filthy stuff and sometimes it doesn't work out like I would say you know his he's good he's a good pitcher I, I'm a big fan of his i I wish that the nationals have had would do more for him mm-hmm. um, he's one of those guys that I feel is bad hasn't Won a playoff game or, or yeah. something like that, or has gone deep in the playoffs. So you made
0: me want to look up Greg Maddox stats because they're just nuts. And in 1997, Maddox went 19 and four, uh, a walk rate of point eight, point eight, and mm-hmm. we're talking about like uh, Strasburg is at his best when he's walking about a three a game, and Maddox was able to do under one a game, uh, home run rate of 0. 0.3, which I mean it's just it's like absurd. That that's a home run every every four starts about mm-hmm. um, which is just just wild um, I mean obviously a different era of baseball well actually that's a great era of baseball to have a low home run rate yeah, considering yeah seriously he, like, 1997 he, when he was absurd Ken, Caminiti is hitting 45 home runs and he
1: wasn't even overpowering I mean I the Onion had this article about him and I can only ever picture him now they were joking that he went to the mound in a sweater vest so now I can only ever picture him pitching in a sweater vest honestly yeah which Greg,
0: is... Greg Maddox great great uh, like middle school choir teacher yeah yeah
1: kind of yeah. aesthetic yep
0: um, all right, let's talk about a fun one, which is fun for just about anyone who, who participates in it, because everyone has an opinion. Um, I'm interested to hear yours, because I'm not sure this is something that you would have thought about too much. Uh, but it's it's LeBron versus MJ, mm-hmm. and it's kind of that that that, uh, that finality argument that, that people need to have, and it's it's now it's now somewhat fair considering it's 15 to 15 mm-hmm. in terms of their, their amount of seasons played. So um, at the end of 15 seasons, LeBron did not hit six titles. Um, so that, that, you know, for a lot of people, that's, that's where the argument ends. You had some other stuff here, um, as, as to kind of comparing their, their run numbers. You looked at how their playoffs, playoff finish or playoff, um, seedings were throughout their career. Uh, but basically, I mean, you look at the first 15 seasons, it is abundantly clear that, that, that LeBron is an inferior scorer, scorer to Jordan. He is, he is a better distributor and rebounder. Which you know I guess is attributed to their style of play and to LeBron's size, um, but you know six to three, and then uh, it's inter- I mean looking at, looking at kind of LeBron's uh, playoff seeding distribution, it's kind of always at the top, mm-hmm. whereas Jordan he kind of hit every stage of being you know he was he was at the eight seed twice, um, a seven seed, a six seed, whereas LeBron has been mostly. A one or a two seed throughout his career. So uh, it's interesting to kind of compare them from, from that perspective too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I – I again, NBA is not my thing, but I grew up, you know, hearing about MJ, watching MJ, watching Space Jam. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I definitely have heard and been witness to both of these guys, both awesome players. Um, I kind of wanted to take it from a different angle. You always hear about the raw stats. So like you mentioned um, – Over the 15 seasons, LeBron has the better winning percentage in terms of teams he's played on. He has more minutes. Um, Jordan has more points. Jordan has more points per game, more steals per game, 50-point games by a huge margin. LeBron has more rebounds, assists, and triple-doubles. What I was looking at was where their team finished uh, the regular season uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of, again, the seeding. Um, LeBron's teams so 10 of his 15 teams have finished first or second whereas only six of Jordans have. Um, I, I will not say one way or the other how I, I do have an opinion but I won't say out loud what I think. I think I think you need to I, but, 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 <laughs> but
0: what I will say about this argument is that if you go if you go just on numbers, it's 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 very very hard to, to pull to you, pull LeBron.
1: You could you could find a way. It to requires some cherry picking. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, you if if you tried hard enough, you could find a way to say one way or the other who's better. Um, again, that variable selection. Like if I, if I built a model that only looked at rebounds, assists, and triple doubles, then right, LeBron would be the better player. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you wait? Ball, like how do you wait rebounds over assists it's kind of like you know what you know what's more important I think it's very it's a very interesting thought exercise to think of okay in relation to how good my team was what did I make of that mm-hmm. um yep I mean LeBron has been on some really good teams I think when I when Jordan was at like the height of his career I was like between the ages of maybe like three and Eight, yeah. something like that. Right. So, uh, I didn't consume as much media as I do now. Um, you like Le- LeBron, King there LeBron. Also, wasn't as much
0: media to be consumed. That's very true. Yeah.
1: Um, but you hear about like King LeBron, and you know whoever he is going to be courted so hard this off season, it's going to be ridiculous. And he claims he doesn't want a big, big show of it, but you know he had an entire. It it's the an, decision it is an inherently big show. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, like it's it's. Interesting to when you put into that perspective of the people around them, like mm-hmm. if if somebody built this team around you and expected you to win, like what did you do with it? Um, and I, it's not a knock. I mean, LeBron did a ton this postseason. Yeah. Like he he did so much, and you know they still didn't win a game. Um, I think it comes down to if you look at the, the there was only
0: four six times in LeBron's career where he was had a championship caliber team around him and it's it's the Miami years, all four of those and then I would say one or two of the Cleveland seasons, including the year, year that they won. so that so um, but if, you, if you're talking about who was there for the final for for the finals because obviously LeBron's first year, Love, in, in, back in Cleveland, Love and Irving aren't, aren't there for the finals. Mm-hmm. So it comes down to it's about five or six times that LeBron's team was a championship-caliber team and three titles out of that. But I think it, when, we're, when we're kind of diagnosing it from a team-building perspective of the Bulls, how they organically created a, a, an ecosystem around Jordan versus LeBron. LeBron's first eight years were spent in Cleveland, those eight years. So if you look at kind of uh, when when the Bulls acquired Scottie Pippen, it's after it's after MJ's third season. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that this is this is a generational talent. The way he's scoring, uh, the way he's the way he's playing. Uh, the Bulls go and get Scottie Pippen. They they, they trade for him after from the Sonics after LeBron's third season. You don't draft Scottie Pippen. You don't go and get any of that. You go and draft Booby Gibson and you acquire Scott Paul, Scott Pollard and, and Dwayne Jones. You and I know
1: that was a bad move, right? right? I don't even know uh, any of those people. Bo- Booby Gibson was <laughs> yep. just a
0: product of of them not having the the uh, the wherewithal to 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 get a better pick. But they never, there was never a player that was playing on LeBron's level in Cleveland that was peaking with him. So by the time Scottie Pippen is after his third year, now you have Jordan after six. LeBron or Scotty Pippen after 3, that those those core of players peaking at the same time is what leads to titles.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: LeBron never had anyone like that. By the time he gets to Miami, he's he's kind of cresting with these guys and so the first year despite everything they should have won the title that year in 2010 mm-hmm. against, against Miami or against Dallas. There's there's no excuse for that, I guess 2011. Um but but those first eight years kind of exacerbated any sort of patience to build a team that that would get to that level. Um, so the, so anything that you see from from another team that that is just a great team for years and years and years that was built out of out of a patience, LeBron was never a product of patience and and his arrival in cleveland created this this weird power vacuum where they they couldn't and didn't surround him with young talent right away and when you don't do that you risk just him carrying and then having nothing around him and that's what happened and that's what led to him leaving which led to the impatience in miami where miami wasn't able to to kind of take a patient approach and say Let's kind of ramp this up and build it up because mm-hmm. you already have three guys getting $25 million a year from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then same coming back to Cleveland. As, as we have this asset, we have the first overall pick, we are going to immediately cash that chip in for for a guy that, that gives us a very tight window to win.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, uh, part of me says, and rightfully so because it's like a once in a generation type thing, I mean... I keep going back to baseball, but you have a Mike Trout-like person on the Angels, and he's having the best season of baseball ever. Mm-hmm. The last person, like, the person he's beating is Babe Ruth. Like, you're yeah. talking about 80, 90 years of Babe Ruth owning that stat. So, you know, not that there is going to be another basketball player as good as LeBron for 80 years, but, you know, it's it might be a long time, and... Mm-hmm. I don't know who's on the horizon, you know, but uh, hopefully they're at Villanova. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's probably uh, got a back back uh, back alley deal
0: to to go to, to, go to Duke in a couple of years. So Too soon. so be, be be ready for that. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I think any any LeBron MJ debate that comes out with LeBron as the, as the the winner comes down to, to a subjective thing, not unlike what I just said. Yeah, um,
1: I I will say that I I lean. MJ, and I feel like the people who try to say LeBron work way too hard to say. <laughs> yeah, LeBron, oh for sure, so.
0: for sure. Yeah. You know, I yeah, I, I it's it's the wise thing for, for me and people of my ilk to do to concede to MJ, <laughs> but it is it is difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, last last one we'll talk about was my own Frankenstein's monster of of, uh, of a of a statistics led project, and this was something that. Um, that I was inspired to do from listening to another podcast, which found or it, was, it was Chris Vernon and, and um, Kevin O'Connor of the Ringer NBA show talking about kind of why, why, over and over, you see this kind of mock draft culture that you have in the NBA where there's all these you know, prognosticators of this is going to happen here and this is going to happen here, most of which are talking completely out of their ass, uh, but a few of them are very well connected. So, why do every year after year you see these mock drafts come out and it's this player going here? And then after five picks, that is off, right? Why, why does this continue to happen? And why do people pay so much credence to them when they are wrong so often? Um, and and what, what Chris Vernon, the host of the show, said is from talking to an agent is that those mock drafts actually can influence what a team does. As we were talking about earlier with, with how baseball GMs might, might choose to make decisions based off of where they are. Uh, what, what team they are the general manager for and kind of the circumstances of that team is that a team might be super conscious of those mock drafts and knowing what type of player the fans expect that when they, uh, they, they when it comes down to picking a player, they won't pick the guy they want because they kind of know how important it is to their fan base to select a certain player. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led me to say, okay, I, I can't I can't go in and I can't say, you know what What were all these gms doing for this specific pick or what why why did they make the picks i can just look at what happens when they do what happens when they do go far away from that um and so i created a just a a, a tableau sheet of basically every mock or every selection in the nba draft from 2005 to 2013 looking at how well they performed over five years which is the amount of time that a team can control them um and then relative to how, how far they were drafted away from where they were supposed to be drafted if you look at from from mock draft consensus during that time and you see kind of this massive sh- spread shot you see this kind of huge clump in the middle of people drafted exactly where they should be which happens a lot I mean give credit to the, the people that do mock drafts they know what they're talking about um, but then you see when, when, what happens when they go players get selected earlier and selected later And basically you can find a case everywhere. If you want to look at a player that was drafted much earlier than they're projected to be drafted performing poorly, such as Anthony Bennett, first overall in in 2013, um, versus a player who was drafted much earlier than they were thought to and and performing well, you can find that. And you can find the same thing on the other side. A player that slid very far for good reason, such as like a a New Orleans Noel, versus a guy like Danny Granger who fell very far and then didn't perform, or performed very well. So there's kind of all these counterweights all across the board, which led me to basically the conclusion of do it regardless. Because there's no reason to, to draft a certain way over over another one because you can find examples of success no matter how you draft. You can draft a consensus and do well and do poorly. Same thing on either end.
1: Mm-hmm. This was cool. I I was it was, a big it was fan fun. Of this. It was yeah, it fun looked it looks fun. Um, and I think the coolest thing was you you so you did a few things here. Um, uh, you kind of, you mapped out, um, you know, obviously the deviance from where they were projected to be drafted against the value they provided to the team over a five-year mm-hmm. span. Um, and you, you get this weird shape. Um, and then you said that you tried to fit a regression model. Yep. Um,
0: didn't work very well.
1: <laughs> didn't work very well. Um, but it was, it was cool because I remember you texted me and you were like, we're going to talk about this on the podcast. By the way, my R squared is, is .004, mm-hmm. and my P value is .11. Which
0: the- which to you mean, means a lot more than it did to me, so I kind of had mm-hmm. to look up, and there's basically, there's four, when you compare R and P, there's like four zones. There's like a, a high R close mm-hmm. to one, but a low P, Yeah. high R, high P, uh, and obviously low and low and all that. Mm-hmm. And so those mean different things. So I had yes. a very, very low R value, which mm-hmm. tells me that my, my two variables are not connected to each other very well. Thereabouts? I,
1: I will comment on that in a second. But okay. Go on.
0: And then my p-value, which mm-hmm. tells me that... What what does that tell me?
1: Okay. So, so a lot of people who take standard statistics classes, um, you do this p-value check mm-hmm. where... Uh, so basically, when you are trying to test something, you come up with what's called a null hypothesis, where you say... Um, the opposite of something is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your p-value is below 0.05, you reject that null hypothesis. Uh, 0.05 is such an arbitrarily chosen number, um, but essentially this p-value is the probability that the value is going to fall outside of a certain range. Um, so that range is two standard deviations above or below the mean, mm. if it's a 2 tailed test. Um, so... If let's say uh, the value that a player provides, let's say the mean is um, two mm. for VORP, yeah. um, or that's basically the NBA equivalent of WAR. Yeah. Um, let's say it's two, um, and two standard deviations above is um, three. Mm. Anything above three would be in that .05 zone. So. If I were to choose a value of 3.5, the probability of a player being in that zone is less than 5%. Okay. So essentially what you're doing is you are setting a cutoff of how comfortable you are that an outlier could exist. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, what you do is you you do this test. So the p-value in this case was 0.11. So if you were looking at uh, a level of 0.05, this would fail and you would not be able to... uh, reject the null. You you never say that you accept the null, you just say you're not able to reject it. Got it. Um so uh having said that, people have placed way too much emphasis on p-values. Um it is actually starting to be a trend that p-values are not as important. 0.11 is actually really low, and that means that the variable you were looking at, which I believe was the deviance from yep. the uh, consensus. consensus draft pick Um, as a predictor of how much value they were going to give you 0.11 is really good Mm -hmm. like that that predictor was actually probably really good especially when there's like more consensus with um, uh, between the the mock draft sites Um, the problem that you ran into and because that r squared is so low is you are using uh vorp Mm -hmm. which has a maximum value of Thirty, like Chris Paul was the highest, yeah, the highest floor, but like somewhere between like twenty-five and thirty. Um, but then you had uh, these deviants of draft values that were in the thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to do what's called a log transformation. So if you take the log uh, of both sides, um, it's going to scale your numbers down so they are in within the same range Got of it. values. Um, and then what that's going to do is. Um, Right now, your chart looks like a blob. It literally looks like somebody took a paintbrush and they just flicked at a at an easel or something like that. Yep. Um, so if you try to look at that, you will never see a line. Mm-hmm. Um, a line is not the answer for that type of data. So when you fit a regression model, you try to draw a line through that and it, it's not a good indicator or predictor of, of where People are going to fall. Mm -hmm. Um, So what you want to do is, if you do a log transformation, it's going to smush that down, and it's going to give you that trend. So basically, you just take the log of both sides, and then you you look at the data. Mm -hmm. I would put money on the fact that you're going to see some trend. Interesting. And I'm very. I don't have access to the raw data, but I am going to push you you to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you do a log transformation of that, I bet that your data will give you some shape um and at that point you can say all right i want to do linear regression this looks like a line Mm -hmm. or it might not look it might look like a curve it might be exponential it might be something else so um i think this seems like a prime candidate for what's called um uh a random forest type analysis where essentially you draw a figure called a dendrogram Mm -hmm. um and you have all these rules so if vorp is greater than one um end the process here and that's where this player falls but if it's greater than one go to this next decision interesting you basically build this decision tree and you you basically lump players in different categories based on if they follow a rule or not Mm -hmm. um and you keep going down the tree to the to the branches and and at a certain point they'll hit an end and that's how you lump players in different categories i think that would be like the final result of of this there you go um but i thought it was super cool that you texted me and were like hey r squared p value they're wacky the outcome you got is like the wackiest outcome you could get with a low r squared and low p value (laughs) so that is a unique thing to see um and it was super cool that you picked that out so yeah, it Kudos. was
0: it was it was fun to do that, and definitely, obviously, I had some, some severe limitations in terms of, of flying by the seat of my pants mm. as to, to what any of this meant the whole time. So, uh, you were a big consultant on that, and and as were uh, Kevin Pelton of ESPN was was my boy on that. He uh, went to UW and, and I reached out to him to, to help help me with that. It was uh, it was definitely interesting to just for for nothing else, any of this research, any of these talks that we do going back and looking at these types of things and, and being, you know, reminded of the fact that player X was drafted here or, or player Y was drafted here and and looking back through the annals of history it, it, for the means of, of coming up with a, a statistical conclusion is, is, uh, is some good fun. And people might disagree with us on that, but, <laughs> but I think uh, that's why, why we're having this conversation right now. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, all right. Well, I got nothing else. I'm sure we'll have five coming in late July sometime. I, I have some ideas we already, already. Probably so. got three or four queued up. Yeah. Um, so I gotta fight, fight to, to beat you to the fifth one. <laughs> um, but uh, good to see some NBA trickling in there.
1: Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. All maybe right. I'll maybe I'll add a soccer thing or something. like There that. we go. Yeah. Curling or. Uh, don't talk about soccer. Yeah, I needed,
0: it's... I needed Germany to do much better <laughs> than today. <laughs> All right, folks, that'll do it. Like I said, subscribe, five stars, you know the drill. Uh, We'll see you very soon on the Boy Beats World Podcast. Peace.